everybody? How you guys doing? My name's Eric. Welcome to E3. If this is your first time or, or, or uh, whatever, we welcome you here. Um, I, I'd like to tell you guys kind of a little bit of my story tonight. Um, I grew up in church. I grew up an, uh, in, a, in an every Sunday family. You know, every Sunday we were there. Uh, we didn't always know how to talk about faith from Monday to Saturday, but Sunday we were there. Uh, when, when we moved to Texas, I was born in, in western Pennsylvania, but when we moved to Texas, which, where I spent 20 years of my life, uh, we were fifth, fifth pew back right, right side of the aisle. Is anybody, like, can anybody remember if you were a kid, like, oh gosh, I, that was, you had your spot. That was our family spot, fifth pew back, uh, right side of the aisle. I had the aisle seat, my father sat beside me so he could kind of like lean over and give me the little pop in the back of the head whenever I was kind of like nodding, nodding off. Um, and that was, that was where I spent, you know, basically from the time I was born till I was 18 years old, every Sunday. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I walked away. When I was 18 years old, uh, I walked away. And, and not because of, of out and out rebellion, although I have that tendency in me, uh, it was really just out of boredom. I, I, I was basically bored with everything I had heard. Nothing I had heard uh, basically compelled me to, to stay in this thing called the church. And, and in most of my 20s, I just kind of explored different ways of living, um, different expressions of faith. But the thing that was kind of interesting or flowing through this all the time is that I, I would say even as a, as a young child, I was always what I would call spiritually curious and even spiritually sensitive. So the whole time that I might have been apathetic about God or confused about who God is, I'm always asking these questions too, even as a young guy. You know, just kind of trying to figure out who God is, who this Jesus is, and what he wants from my life, even up, till, uh, even up to my teens, even up to when I walked away from the church, there was always this kind of like sense of like, man, I, I just, I want to wrestle with this. I don't know what it means, but I want to wrestle with it. Um, in my 20s, about, I guess probably when I was 26 or 27, I finally had, I, I wouldn't call it a conversion experience, but I would, I would call it sort of one of these heartbreaking crushing experiences of my need for forgiveness. And I remember where I was. I don't remember exactly what date it was or anything like that. But I remember just being overwhelmed with something that I had done, things that I had done, things I have seen, um, thoughts that I had. And I remember literally just being on my knees, weeping on the phone with a friend of mine and just basically saying like, I... I have done wrong. I need forgiveness. I need mercy from somewhere. I need love from somewhere. And that was pretty significant in my life. It was really the inbreaking of this sense of, of grace and mercy and love. And I walked more deeply into that and maintained my curiosity just about God and Jesus. When I was 29 years old, I started working for a church full time. And I've been working for churches pretty much full time off and on since then. So all through my 30s, same thing, just learning more, processing more. But about two and a half years ago, 
something changed inside of me. Something changed with my mind, the way I thought about God and Jesus. And, and the way I would put it is this. As crass as this sounds, that up until about two and a half years ago, I could really have cared less whether Jesus was smart or dumb or crazy. Because all that I really cared was that he was on that cross dying for my sins. And I don't know if you've ever been that way. Like, I just kind of sat and I, and I, and I really kind of dug down deep to my attitudes. And I'm like, Jesus could have been insane. I don't know. All I know is that I've been taught that he died for my sins. And that's a good thing. And I want to believe that because I want to get into his kingdom. But over time, I also kind of got to wrestle. I was like, is there something more? Because there's an awful lot of this book called the Bible that are full of his words. And it's full of his deeds. And it's full of the things that he does. And, and so, so I started to wonder, like, well, is there something about the way he lived his life? Is there something about what he said to people that matters? One, one theologian put it this way, that, that I may have understood what Jesus' death was for, but I had no conception what his life was for. All I needed was him to be on that cross. And over time, I was like, I don't know. I think there might be something more to that. So about two and a half years ago, I started to dig deep about who he was and, and what the people around him thought of him. And here's what I've come up with, that Jesus was brilliant. That Jesus was a deeply thinking, insightful man. Like if you just read the way he talks to his disciples, the way he talks to the people who hate him, the way he talks to people who could care less, it's brilliant. It's provocative. Like this man lived his life and said, lived his life in an extraordinary way and said extraordinary things. And his life and his words matter. So I say that because we're spending 16 weeks with his words. 16 weeks with his teachings. And I can't wait to see what unfolds and grows up in our community over these weeks as we wrestle with them. Jesus, Jesus died for our sins, absolutely. The cross is the dividing line of history in a sense. But there is more to the story than that. He taught his, his disciples brilliantly and, and we're gonna kind of dig into uh, a teaching tonight that is hard, and, and I really want to be clear with that before I, I go much further. There are things that Jesus says that resonate very deeply with our hearts, and we go, oh man, I feel so loved by Jesus. I feel so embraced by Jesus. Jesus is so nice. I want to go have a smoothie with Jesus. Let's go have a latte, Jesus, you know? But then there's other times when Jesus uncorks something on us, and it's like, a uh, rain check on the smoothie, Jesus. I'll get back to you on this because what you're saying right now is a little uncomfortable. Uh, this is one of these stories. Okay? So that being said, I want to read the text. It's Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus says this. He says that the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. But they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. 
Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. Uh, would you guys uh, mind bowing your heads? We're just going to say a prayer. Lord, there are times when you are uh, uncomfortable on a very deep level. There are times when your words to us penetrate all of our conceptions and, and understanding and misunderstandings of who you are and what you're up to in the world, God. And I feel like this is one of these times. So I pray, Lord, that we would sit in submission at, at your feet and submission to your text, to these words of Jesus, and that we would ask what you might want from us tonight and how we might learn from you. Teach us, God, and, and stay here uh, with us as we try to learn. Amen. So, so am I the only one that finds this slightly disturbing? Am I the only one that, that, that's like, well, I don't, I don't really know. We've got weeping, gnashing of teeth. We've got a king burning down cities. We've got, this doesn't sound like warm, fuzzy Jesus, right? So what is going on here? What do we do with these texts? Because a lot of times I think what we would really do is just kind of do this. I'll just put this one away. I'll read, I'll read the next passage. But that's not what we have the freedom to do. God has given us this text, and we have to figure out how to live uh, guided by it and submitted to it. So uh, I, I want to kind of just kind of lay, uh, lay some groundwork, put some framework up around this that might help us understand this. The first thing I would say to you is that this interaction, this story that Jesus says, that Jesus teaches here, happens at a very particular time in his ministry. In Matthew chapter 21, we're told that Jesus has come into Jerusalem. And when he comes to Jerusalem, there are crowds lining the street, welcoming him as the Messiah, as the king. And then Jesus goes to the temple and he causes a riot, basically, turning, in, turning tables over, disrupting everyone. And then he begins to confront the religious leaders of the day. And it's not pretty. All through chapter 21, he is, he is unloading on them. You're wicked servants. You're missing it. Every type of pointed, uh, pointed statement that Jesus can make about them, he makes it. And it's just building and building and building. And this parable that we're going to talk about tonight comes at the, all the tail end of, or almost the tail end of all of these stories. Basically saying to the, to the leaders of, of Israel, the leaders of the religious establishment, you have missed what God is up to. So the first thing I would say to you as you read a story like this, realize that it is written to the people who were leading Israel and ultimately leading them astray. 
So did Jesus' rank and file, the people who were like, I'm on board with you, Jesus. I understand. I, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. This story was told maybe in their presence, but not necessarily about them or to them. In fact, we're told in a few verses later in, in the 22nd verse of this chapter that the religious leaders have finally had enough. It says they went away. The religious leaders have had enough. Jesus has given them all they can handle and they, and they go away. So that's the first thing to, to realize is that there's a specific context that there's this teaching. The second thing is to realize that this is a parable. And parables are something that Jesus used an awful lot. It was a common teaching device uh, with other teachers in ancient cultures. And I would just say a few kind of, a few kind of uh, hallmarks of a parable is it was considered sort of a work of art, a short narrative, but it was also Jesus' favorite weapon. Whenever he wanted to confront somebody, it was like, whip out the parables. Here they come. A parable would show the character of God and his kingdom, something about it. But parables were always shocking. There was always something that was just kind of designed to make people wake up. It would often revolve the necessity to reverse your thinking about how you had been thinking about God. Like something just has to change for, for you. And it was also almost always involves some kind of invitation to get in on what Jesus is doing. One more thought about a parable. Like we're used to symbolism sometimes. And we would say, oh, we can go through a story and go, oh, this means, uh, this is equated with this. This means this in reality. This means, you can't do that with parables. Parables are intentional exaggerations. So sometimes you can look through a parable and you can go, oh, this represents this. This represents this. But other times you get to things like, I don't know what, the, I don't know what this means. Well, that's okay. Because parables aren't designed to, to equate one-to-one -to, -one to our reality. So with that in mind, let's take a step back and let's just look at the characters, first of all, in this parable. We have, the, we have a king. We have the king's son. We have servants. We have guests. There's two groups of guests. And we have an unprepared man, which that's, that's the name I gave him. I'm just going to call him Flip-Flop Man, and I'll tell you why shortly. So uh, the king... What does, who does the king represent? God, yes. The king always represents God in Jesus' parables and in uh, almost all Jewish parables. The king is always Yahweh. It's God. So who does the son represent? Yeah, this is the one time that the Sunday school answer is the right answer. It's Jesus. Um, it's almost always Jesus in the parables and in most Jewish uh, stories. Uh, we would say the Messiah, of, of, and that's Jesus. There are occasions in the Bible where God refers to the whole nation of Israel as his son, but most of the time, God's son is the Messiah. Now, when we get to servants, things get a little fuzzier because there are schools of thought that would say, oh, the servants mean like the prophets, like these guys who, who told about Jesus' coming, but it's not, really, it's not really considered to be that way. The servants of God are just the servants of God, just guys who, who do what God wants them to do, do what the king wants them to do. The two groups of guests, um, the first group of guests are, are basically the leaders of the religious establishment. That's who they are. They're the guys who have been on the inside, who, have, who, have, who would say that we are closest to the king. We are closest to God. We know what God's up to. 
But in this story, you see that they, they kind of miss out. And then the second group of guests would be Jesus' followers, the guys that are gathering around his ministry, his uh, actions and teachings. And then we're going to get to the unprepared man in a second, flip-flop guy. Um, so the events of the story, the king decides to throw a banquet. Banquets in this culture are really, really important affairs, especially when the banquet is for the king's son. We're told it's an implication, it's a wedding feast. It's a big deal. That's the thing you have to keep in mind. It's a really, really big deal. When, when, when you are having a, a really, really big event, you want the best people there. When you are the king of, a, of an area or, or the ruler of a city, you start off your invitation list with the biggest and brightest and the best of that city. So the king would sit around and he would go, well, here's the deal. Who comes to my party makes me look good. So the invitation list needs to look like this. It needs to look like all the business leaders, all the most powerful politicians, all of the most powerful religious authorities. They need to be invited to this. Because in this culture, who attends your party is a reflection of your status in culture. So the more, people, more important people come to your party, the more important you are seen, you are perceived in that culture. So he would send out an invitation, the first invitation. That's what we're told about. This is all culturally uh, natural to this, to this time. And then uh, basically the time would come for the actual feast to be prepared. And he would send out literally a second invitation. Hey, remember when we said save the date? Remember this thing? The party's happening now. But now we're told that all the people that said they were going to come, all the most important people, are suddenly, oh, I've got something, something to do. This is a devastating event for, for someone throwing a party. Uh, some, some scholars say that, that if you had a king and you refused to come to his banquet, it's basically an act of rebellion. It's basically saying, I don't care who you are, king. I'm not coming to your party. It's an insult. And it's not just a random, oh, I, 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 I accidentally said something I shouldn't have said. It's calculated. They say they refuse to come. They're too busy. The business leader has too much stuff to do. Even the religious leaders are kind of too busy doing religious things to miss the fact that the banquet has begun. And this is, uh, is really scathing when you realize that there's another level that banquets and feasts operate in this society. It's not just about coming to a great party. There's a guy named Isaiah who wrote hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' ministry. And I'm just going to read a passage because I, I want you to know when Jesus says the word banquet, when Jesus says the word feast, there's another layer operating here. Isaiah writes it like this in chapter 25. He says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful what? For all the people of the world. It will be a delicious what? with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. And there he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. 
Isaiah is writing about a time when God is going to unveil something new in the world. And all of the gloom will be wiped away. All the tears will be wiped away. Death, gone. So when Jesus says the banquet has begun, it's another way of him saying the great moment that you've been waiting for, religious leaders, your whole life. The great movement of God, the inbreaking of his kingdom into the world, it's happening now. And you've refused to come. The people who were supposed to be the most eager to come are refusing. And not only that, they insult his servants, they kill his servants. The whole point being, these people want nothing to do with this banquet. So the king gets angry. And in this culture, the king had every right to be this angry. And this is where the parable gets a little, uh, little kind of out of time because we're told that while the banquet is sort of being prepared, the king goes and burns an entire city. I'm not sure if there's enough time for him to actually go do this, but the point being the king is angry and retribution happens. And we're told in the Bible a couple times that uh, Israel's leaders have missed out on what God's doing before and it's cost them. Jerusalem's been burned before. The temple has been burned before. The king is angry. But then he does something really, really crazy because he's got all this food and the banquet is prepared. And he says, I want people at my banquet. So if the biggest, the best, the brightest won't come, I'm just going to go look for people who just want to be there. So he goes out and, and the servants go to the street corners and they just say, hey, our king is holding a banquet. It's going to be awesome. You want to come? And people just come in. Now, if you remember the cultural significance of who comes to your party, this is really, really cool to me. Because the king is basically saying, you know what? In most people's worlds, like who comes to my party, it, it matters and it makes me look good or bad. But in this parable, Jesus is basically saying, God, God's reputation is not, is not enhanced or detracted by who comes to his party. So he can invite the poorest of the poor. He can invite the most messed up people. It's not going to reduce his stature in the world. It's not going to make it any better because he's God. This king does not depend on, on who shows up in his gates for his reputation in the world. He says, bring, bring them all. You don't have it together? Bring, come, it's a party. I just want you there. And so that's kind of where we're, we're, we're sitting. And if we, if we just stop this parable right there, I think we would all be happy and we could all go home and go like, again, man, I love that Jesus. He's so awesome. But we're, it, we, we can't because there's more to the story. And this is where it gets kind of, kind of tough and kind of jacked up. Because all of a sudden the king comes into his party and he sees a guy that doesn't, that doesn't look right. He doesn't have the right clothes on. And he walks up to him and he's like, uh, tell me about your toga. And the guy's like, well, I, I can't say anything about the toga. And, and the guy's like, well, you're out of here. And there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. <laughs> so what do you do with that? I mean, what, what do you do when Jesus just kind of says something that's very un-Jesus-like? I, I think if we, if we stop and if we, if we think about what is, what is actually going on here, I think it may challenge us, but I think we may understand it 
a little more because the tendency is just to throw this out of the Bible. The tendency is just to say, well, I won't, I won't read that part. But that's not, that's not our right, if I could just be clear. Like if we're going to be a people of the book, we're a people of the book and we have to wrestle with it. So, so there's this man. Now, it says he, he's not wearing wedding clothes. Uh, he's, he's not dressed appropriately. Well, first of all, the implication in the text is actually that it's not like he hasn't, uh, he's not wearing clothes that, that aren't good enough. It, it, it's not like the king expects him to have gone out and spent $400 on a new suit to wear the coolest and the most up-to-date clothing. The implication in the text is that the guy just didn't even bother to wear his best to a banquet that was being thrown by the king. That he just showed up in the, in the, in, in the clothes that, that didn't even indicate, I was just been invited to a banquet I have no business being invited to by the king. I'm just going to show up wearing whatever I want to show up, wear, whatever I want to wear. It's not that the king expected him to buy something new. It's not that the king expected him to wear something super flashy. The king just expected him to say, Maybe go home and, 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 and wear something, you know, to acknowledge that it's a banquet. To acknowledge that it's something special. Now, still, we're not quite there because I think there's still kind of like, well, what, still, I don't get it. What, what did the guy do wrong? He's outside the weeping, the gnashing of teeth. Well, first I want to show you a picture, and we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about this for a second. This is a picture of the Northwestern University University. Women's lacrosse team, 2005 national champions. Anybody ever seen this picture before? Okay, a couple people. This picture is significant mostly because of a couple young ladies in the front row to President Bush's right. This was like, uh, like I said, 2005. It must have been a very slow news week because uh, the news broke out that these young ladies to, to President Bush's right, uh, right, if you look on their feet, what are they wearing? flip-flops. So for, for a few days in 2005, there was a story, Northwestern University women wear flip-flops to the White House. And, and, it, and it kind of caused a little bit of a stir that basically people were like, let me get this right. You were invited to the White House to meet the president of the most powerful country in the world. And you thought that it was okay to show up wearing $1.99 flip-flops. And there was this whole idea of like, not that flip-flops are inherently bad. I've got a pair. I love them. But there are certain times when you should acknowledge, I don't always get to wear exactly what I want. Maybe there's certain times you're like, I'm meeting the president. Maybe I should understand what I'm coming to. So, so if we turn to, return to this guy, the, the flip-flop guy, and ask, like, what was his crime? What did he really do wrong? I would say this, that he never thought for a minute that maybe he didn't have, uh, that maybe he should have asked, what does a king want me to wear to his banquet? I read a theologian a couple weeks ago that said that this story kind of says that limitless grace is accompanied by limitless demand. 
And I think sometimes we don't realize that the limitless ocean of God's grace does not come with it a little bit of a demand from the king. He's not just our savior. Scripture says he's also our king. And at times the king says, I want this from you, and it's up to us to obey that. And, and relatedly, that, that flip-flop man's uh, crime was not that he didn't wear the right things. It's not that he didn't pray the right prayers. It's not that he didn't do all the right religious things. He was at a banquet that he had no business being at. But ultimately, he said, I'm going to come to the banquet on my terms, wearing what I want to wear. There's, there's a prayer that Jesus prayed, and he taught his disciples to pray. It, it, it's, you might know it as the Lord's Prayer. You might know it as the Our Father. It goes like this, you know, Our Father who lives in the heaven, may your name be kept holy. And then there's this phrase, may your kingdom come and your will be done. But when we don't acknowledge that we actually come to a king, it's very tempting to say, you know what? Actually, my will be done. My will be done. And if I want to wear flip-flops in the presence of the king, so be it. And the king walks up to him, and you notice that he asks him. The king doesn't just throw him out. The king says, why are you dressed this way? And what's the man say? He says nothing. And, and in a sense, there's this idea that maybe he was actually saying, maybe the implication is there, I don't even owe you an explanation, king. I've come to this party because I wanted to be here, wearing what I want to be, and I owe you no explanation. And is that any way to come to the banquet of a king? I would say no. And so it's not that he, he didn't do the right things or wasn't wearing the right thing. It was the attitude of his heart that caused the problem. So if we took a step back and we say, okay, well, let's sum up. Let's sum up what we've just heard and experienced and read I would say three things. I would say first, some things matter. Some things just matter. You know, the king in, issues an invitation and it's very tempting to just be too busy to respond. But the fact is, is that the invitation has been given and, and, and the banquet is set and there's a party happening. And if you've been too busy to respond, all I can say is it's still going on and don't miss out on it. And the second thing I would say is, is kind of just something that, that was weighed on, on my, my heart. And that is just that Jesus takes himself seriously. He takes his message seriously. Sometimes it, it, it's really easy to just kind of like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, let's just get Jesus crucified so we can be forgiven again. But what Jesus had to say and what Jesus had to do was very, very important to him. And so he says, there's this king and this king has a son. And you've got to wrestle with this stuff. And then the last thing I would say is that uh, in order to come into this kingdom, in order to experience this feast, this banquet, it just takes two things. It takes humility and it takes gratitude. Because the unprepared guy, he didn't get thrown out because he didn't wear the right things. He got thrown out because he was not humble and he had no gratitude. He came to the party. But he came to the party basically saying, I'm coming to this party on my own terms. I don't care if you're the king or not. I will define this relationship. I'm at a party that I don't even need, that I've never been, no business being invited to. But I'll wear what I want to wear. And what Jesus is saying here is that this kingdom 
is governed by humility and by gratitude. And so we wrestle with those things in our hearts. Where is your humility tonight, this week? Where is your gratitude tonight, this week? Don't worry about saying the right prayers. Don't worry about wearing the right clothes, even though I tucked my shirt in tonight. Don't worry about those things. Worry about the state of your heart. And I think if we can do that, we will find that the limitless demands put on us by the limitless grace of God aren't that hard. It's actually kind of cool and it's actually a great adventure to go on. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, uh, we've, we've read your word. We've, we've spoken. And Lord, uh, it's up to your Holy Spirit now to do the rest. God, I pray that we would acknowledge these things, that we would look for the truth that, that, that is out there and is in your Bible and is in, is in your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that we would seek where we find the truth to submit ourselves to it and learn from it and grow. God, I pray for the humility of this community and the gratitude of this community. That we would continue to be a people who are led deeper, deeper into those attitudes of the heart. And may we learn to take your teachings in your life very, very seriously. Amen.